Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, October 15th, 2015. Been a heck of a week for me, I can tell you that. This broadcast is brought to you by the word standing, like Sesame Street. If you miss standing, you've missed the point. The courts are giving all kinds of pointers and clues about this, and they're concerned about it. And it's about time that lawyers started listening and acting on the central point in this economic crisis. Stolen money cannot be the basis of a legitimate business. Stolen money and fraud has ruined our economy and our culture. It's time to strike back. Whether it is foreclosure defense or rescission, where the homeowner goes on the offensive, the basic premise is still going to be standing. And merely holding a piece of paper in your hand doesn't mean that you ever took part in any transaction. If you take your American Express card and go to three stores and spend $300, and I somehow get a hold of the bill, and I hire somebody to say that they are my bookkeeper, and they certify that that bill is part of my business records, that still doesn't mean that I should get paid. But that's what the courts are doing, and that judgment has the effect of an order by that's effective by operation of law. So American Express could actually end up not getting paid, whereas... The guy who never gave you any kind of advance of money gets all the money. That is an oversimplified version of what the banks and services and trustees have been doing. If the services and trustees actually had standing, there would have been no fabrication of documents, no forgery, no robo-signers would have been needed, etc., And when the cloud of legal fantasies perpetuated by the banks clears, we will all know that the whole thing, including TARP and the other bank bailouts, was a gigantic hoax. And we'll see why servicers want the foreclosures rather than the money. We have seen a lot of backpedaling as servicers interfere with the modification process They've interfered with payoffs on sale, and they've even interfered with reinstatement. 
people who were actually offering him the money. As one judge just last week said out loud for all to hear in the courtroom, why is it that the banks don't want the money? He said, I don't understand that. I thought the whole thing was about money. Those people who are following what I what we have called the AMGAR strategy, it's also referred to as the tendering strategy, where they actually offer payment in full, provided that the person or entity getting the money can prove ownership and balance and the right to represent if necessary. They're being confronted with weird arguments from the attorneys for the servicers in an obvious conflict of interest with their the so-called trust or creditor. Those attorneys representing the services are actually arguing that they don't have any obligation to take the money that would pay off the loan and that it is their option to foreclose regardless of the consequences to the investors and the borrowers. In a nutshell, and this is going to be talked about next week, I think. Whoops, not next week, uh, perhaps the week after next. I'm taking next week off. Um, in a nutshell, people are, are making bona fide cash offers to pay the amount demanded by the foreclosing party if the foreclosing party can produce the original note, prove ownership, that is, by proof of payment of real money, that's what produces standing and their authority and to be able to prove the balance. And what's happening is that these people who are doing that have already seen the same results we have in 14 cases so far, uh, very nice results, some of which are settlements, uh, which are confidential in all cases. And for those of you who know something about bills and notes, the UCC, I repeat, think about this question. In the entire history of this foreclosure mess, why has nobody on the foreclosing side ever claimed to be a holder in due course? If they had alleged that and proven that, there would be no defense. All they'd have to do is show they paid for it in good faith and without knowledge of the borrower's defenses. And the only one of those elements that could possibly be in question is whether they paid for it. And if they didn't pay for it, then the argument by some other entity with the power of attorney or claiming holder status or whatever is that they're representing a representative or they're representing, which is more like the truth, a trust that never did own the loan and never had anything to do with the loan and doesn't have any rights over the loan and never did and never will. My answer is that the banks don't have anyone who fits the description of an actual creditor. They have people holding all kinds of paper, but nobody whoever paid for the principal of the so-called loan, nobody funded the loan, nobody bought the loan. So where's the money? 
think about it. I'm broadcasting live today from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call now, 954-495-9867, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show has a value to you, then please make a contribution to help us continue to help you and other consumers. Living Lies with 11 million visits is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, consumer loans, foreclosure offense, and even student loans. Our mission is to share as much information as we can to help homeowners and other consumers who, in some cases, may not even be aware of the effect that the housing crisis has had on the entire economy. And we are succeeding as more and more lawyers across the country smell blood in the water as they have done their research and come to realize that there is a winning strategy in both foreclosure defense and foreclosure offense and rescission. I just looked over a sem- the uh, PowerPoint for a seminar on the lender side for the lawyers, for the servicers, And they are very concerned about rescission. If they're very concerned about rescission, you can bet that there's meat in there and that there's a lot of possibilities, not only for winning, but for producing uh, results that could award monetary damages and attorney's fees. So lawyers out there, take note. Uh, By the same token, uh, based on a conversation that I had today, I want to tell the homeowners that you can't expect attorneys to uh, provide $50,000 worth of work while you give them $5,000. It's true that you got screwed, but the attorney didn't do it to you, so he doesn't owe you anything, and he's not obligated to take your case. A lot of lawyers exit the foreclosure defense business because they just can't make money doing it because people don't want to pay them, and they don't want to pay them because they think they paid enough, but they didn't pay the lawyer, and I'm telling you that if you don't have a lawyer, you're probably not going to make it through in uh, in any kind of pro se uh, defense or offense. There's gold in those so-called bank errors that I've said from the beginning were intentional. I know how they work. Long ago, I was on Wall Street, and I was an investment banker. Tonight, we have attorney Charles Marshall back with us because he and I have had, been having some interesting conversations about the real issues that the banks keep sweeping under the rug. Joining us also is Dan Edstrom, who is returning, and who has uncovered many of the real facts that I have uh, relied upon and subsequently corroborated um, 
as the senior forensic analyst for Living Lies, for the Living Lies blog. Charles Marshall is an excellent attorney um, who covers most of California. He does his homework, and he's extremely articulate in um, uh, presenting issues and facts. Tonight's program is about who's on first. This is going to be a sneak preview of the seminar on Saturday, the 17th. That's two days from now, and they'll be talking about that. Who's on first sounds like an old routine from Abbott and Costello, for those of you who are old enough to know who that is. But this is real, and it hurts. It's not a comedy routine. Our job is to reveal the truth, and Dan and Charles have been working hard for years at revealing the truth about these so-called loans. Charles, Dan, thanks for coming on the show again. Great to be on the show again, uh, Neil. Yep, thanks for having us, Neil. It, uh, the honor is all mine. We're going to get a sneak preview of your seminar on Saturday in Emeryville. And, uh, uh, well, before we get on to the meat of what we're going to do, um, uh, Dan, why don't you give some information about that seminar and contact information and so forth uh, so people can still get there, uh, assuming there's room, and uh, uh, come as a walk-up if necessary. Right, yeah, we still have some tickets left. The um, seminar information is, uh, the URL is too long, it's on your site. And if anybody needs it, they can reach me at 916-207-6706 or Jim Macklin at 530-888-9600. Okay. And because I've worked with these guys and actually presented with them, I can tell you that their material is always current, and it's on point, and they present it in compelling ways. And uh, Charles is going to be there as well um, to provide for the, uh, the legal part of both procedure and substantive law. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's a... Uh, uh, a must-see uh, event uh, for those of you, uh, even if you think that you have already researched uh, matters, uh, uh, this seminar will uh, certainly uh, add to uh, knowledge that you can directly use in litigation and advising your clients. Dan, you wrote to me and laid out the path that the banks have been on and what's wrong with it. And part of what you wrote was the trustee, a national bank, gives power, gives a power of attorney to a servicer, which is either another national bank or a non-bank like Aquin or NationStar. And then the servicer alleges power of attorney to act on behalf of the trustee. So... What you're describing is what virtually every foreclosure defense lawyer has encountered in court. And um, um, I've won a few cases just on the fact that they were playing with the paperwork like that. 
would you uh, elaborate a little bit on what you were getting at when you were talking about that pattern of paper? Right. The servicer essentially makes payments out of their own account for, you know, insurance, hazard insurance, property taxes, and other expenses, and including principal and interest um, if they need to be made. And then when they actually go to collect, they actually claim that this money is secured on the property as part of the lender's security. And it wasn't paid from the lender, and the lender is not really at risk because it came from a third party who's not named in the contract that the homeowner allegedly signed. Charles, what do you say to people, judges in particular, who say, what difference does it make who the money's owed to as long as we know that the borrower stopped paying? Uh, what I sometimes say, Neil, is that you know, I would say, Your Honor, look, if my client's house, which has now gone to sale, had somebody down the street who just showed up the next day to say it doesn't make any difference who he was paying his mortgage to, who he was paying, let's say, back payments on his mortgage to, that it's got to go to someone so if it's just the guy down the street who puts himself on, on the deed, everybody knows that that party would be sent up on felony charges apart from civil issues for uh, illegalities w related to fraudulent recordings. And yet it's true. And these court proceedings, uh, judges do need to be reminded continually that it absolutely matters that the proper party is the one that's being paid mortgage payments or any, any payments associated with the underlying originating loan or the refinance. Those will be the two events that typically put this whole foreclosure arena into play. And our side needs to absolutely emphasize that it's critical that the proper party is paid and not let the judge or anyone else get away from poo-pooing that that's important. And one of the ways you do that is by, by way of metaphor or analogy to show how absurd it would be if it was literally just somebody down the street. And yet the paper trail and the assignment recordings are often so broken or papered over or backdated or even frontdated, I've seen, that it's it's a marker for uh, fraud and it's evidence of fraud and we have to get it in front of the judges and we have to emphasize time and again with all the details that are involved that this uh, this travesty of justice should not be allowed to go forward and it's it's uh, it really is a a major undertaking on our side but that's what needs to be done to rectify the situation. I think it goes further than that. I think it's not just a matter of preventing fraud. It's a matter of whether the courts are actually encouraging fraud. If you take this business plan of the servicers and the 
with the use of the powers of attorney and fabricated assignments and all that stuff, you're, the body of case law now is creating a foundation where, at best, there's legal doubt as to whether or not somebody could be prosecuted for usurping the business of someone else because somehow or other they got a hold of or created paperwork that indicated that they had a right to collect on it. And if you use, like, the example I gave, you know, if I got a hold of your American Express bill and I got somebody to go in there as a robo-witness uh, to say that, you know, yes, that American Express bill is part of the business records of Neil Garfield, and the judge enters a judgment, not only am I stuck with it, but it's even possible that American Express would no longer have a claim against you because a judgment has been entered on that debt. And I've already raised the issue that I don't owe it to, uh, uh, or, or you've already raised the issue that you don't owe it to me. You owe it to American Express. You're holding their card. Yes, and one so, of the things you're raising just now, Neil, is the one-action rule, which we will have to leave for another show. But the bottom line here is the courts are, in essence, facilitating fraud in these cases when they rule that our side doesn't have standing, when they rule that our side is not prejudiced. Yeah, I think, and, and encouraging it. I mean, if... if if I did what I just said in the uh, in the example... Uh, if I did it enough times, I'd probably end up in jail. But uh, if I was charged with an offense, I'd point to the fact that it's selective enforcement because we have these banks doing the same thing. So That's not that I'm even suggesting that anybody go out and try that because they will probably end up in jail. Uh, but the point is that there are people who are who have done that already, and uh, there'll be more people who are doing it and get emboldened by the fact that the courts have, uh, up to this point, kind of bent over backwards to uh, uh, somehow make the deal real, even though it wasn't. And Dan. Uh, you you went on in, in what you wrote to me, and you were talking about the payments of principal, interest, taxes, insurance, uh, other servicing advances, um, and that a third-party servicer is making the payments, uh, but whether they are making it from their own account or they're making it from a third-party account which has nothing to do with the homeowner and, frankly, very little to do with the investors. Um, that distinction is as, as important as the original uh, funding of the loan, I think, uh, where are you headed in your analysis 
on that issue of the servicer payments and advances? Right. Well, in bankruptcy, um, there's a proof of claim that gets filed. It's supposed to be filed by the creditor, and along with that, they're supposed to list um, the escrow account. And usually the proof of claim creditor is in one name, and then there's an escrow statement that's provided that names somebody else. So you have, you know, Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank as trustee for whatever trust, and then the escrow statement is from NationStar, saying that NationStar is entitled to the money, and that uh, NationStar's claim is secured by the property. And so in a in bankruptcy, there's multiple forms of proof of claims. One of them is a normal proof of claim. The other one is one for a, a guarantor, surety, or endorser. And um, it just seems to me that would be more of an appropriate place for a servicer to list uh, money that's owed to them as opposed to the creditor. Because when you pay back the escrow payments, they don't go to the creditor. Right. They go and to the servicer. Which means, which means that the servicer is actually bringing the foreclosure on its own behalf because the creditor is 100% whole. They've gotten all the payments that they were supposed to get, and they have not advanced the, the taxes, insurance, or servicer uh, advances for uh, uh, principal and interest. Um, when Right, and when they have a power of attorney, that just to me, convolutes the issue because that allows them supposedly to act on behalf of the creditor, but what does that have to do with the money that advanced to pay the escrow? Charles, what do you think about this issue that I've been raising recently, which is it, it seems almost well settled now. The, uh, the lawyers on the other side are admitting that I'm right about it. Uh, that the trust was never funded, it never had a bank account, it never had any assets, it never had any liabilities, it never had any business, it never had any income, and it never had any losses. If that's true, then it never acquired the loan. And if it never acquired the loan, then what difference does it make that the pooling and servicing agreement nominates you know, XYZ as servicer and ABC as trustee because they're servicer for an entity that doesn't do anything. Well, the thing that strikes me is that the, you know, these table-funded loans, the the way that these are put in REMIC trust and other vehicles to in the case of REMIC Trust, avoid tax liability. Uh, you know, the organizers of this whole arrangement, uh, they want to have it both ways. I mean, they want to keep the, the borrower on the hook permanently for all the shenanigans in the background and all the movement of money. And as you say, they're essentially making the table funder whole when the transaction happens. And then the the originating the originating creditor gets out uh, selling his interest for a percentage, and at the end of the day, the only the only party that's subject to liability the way the courts often will interpret this, and of course a lot of what we're doing on our side 
is to put a much different narrative in place in court, and we are making progress, and get the courts to understand that it's the borrower who has standing to object to these arrangements because it's built into the transaction from the beginning in these deals that the loan is going to be put into a pooling and servicing agreement. And the fact that the funding is is essentially, you know, kind of semi-fraudulent and that all kinds of rules are typically violated and were violated when this communal loan funding source is arranged, the fact of all that does not change that all these parties were critical on the funding side for this deal to happen. And just because the borrower wasn't knowledgeable of, of that does not mean that they don't have standing to challenge. In fact, you could make the opposite argument that the failure to disclose this other than in the adhesion agreements that pass for contracts when you purchase a loan or do a refinance, you get these really adhesive agreements and it's take it or leave it. And the the, the language is so dense you don't even see that this is going into a point and servicing agreement. At least it's not apparent in any way that could be right. recognizable unless you had unless you had two days there. to review the agreement. I gotta cut you off there. We read we've run over. Um I would encourage everybody to go to the seminar on Saturday and uh, uh those of you who can add uh, information to the pool there great otherwise you can just absorb it thank thank you dan thank you charles for coming on the show i'm taking thank a you week off. i'll be back in uh a bye bye thanks thanks for listening to our broadcast we hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis tune in every week to the neil garfield show for free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.